0: Well, preaching through books of the Bible, as we do here at Desert Springs, it forces a preacher in a church, really, to talk about matters and think through matters that we may perhaps otherwise wish to avoid. So if you preach through the book of 1 Peter, you have to deal with things like the Christian's relationship to secular government, persecution, the role relationships between husbands and wives in the home, and the doctrine of election. If you preach through one of the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, you have to talk about things like money and hell, not, G- not just Jesus' nice miracles. Preaching through books of the Bible also keeps us from hobby horses. Frankly, Sometimes we come to a doctrine or topic in God's Word and our study of it, and I wish we could stay there for a few more weeks, talk about it some more. But we turn the page in our Bibles, and behold, the next chapter is about something quite different. If I simply asked myself each week, what do I think we need? What does Desert Springs Church need this week? Or what do I feel like talking about this coming Sunday? We'd have a very different Diet of Bible as a church. Preaching through books of the Bible also forces us to stay with a topic or in certain themes a bit longer than we might prefer. In other words, the Bible has repetition. And that repetition doesn't have to be rigidly followed in the Sunday morning sermons. We can, of course, exercise wisdom. We can take A longer section one Sunday, a shorter section the next. But the repetition within a book of the Bible should somewhat be reflected in the repetition in the preaching of that same book. If you've been with us for all or most of our study in the book of 1 Samuel, you may already anticipate where I'm going with this. Ever since Saul and David came into the picture... We've seen, I don't know, maybe 10, 20 stories. And they're different stories, but we keep seeing similar themes over and over again, if you've noticed. We keep seeing Saul's waywardness and wickedness. We keep seeing David's faith and faithfulness. We keep seeing this juxtaposition of two kings, and the question under each is which one do the people follow? Or what's it like to be under this king versus that king? For Samuel shows us again and again the need to trust God at his promises and to trust him for the timing of fulfilling those promises. For Samuel shows us that God's truly anointed man is a suffering anointed king. He's opposed and on the run. He's ever in need but he's dependent on God. We've been seeing in manifold ways and from different directions, the battle is the Lord's, not by might or by sword. God works in inversive ways, upside-down ways, ways you couldn't have predicted or seen coming. And we've been seeing again and again that Jesus is the truly anointed king, Fulfilled all those grand promises given to David and many more, but he fulfilled them not by might, not by sword, but by suffering on our behalf. Preaching through 1 Samuel, some weeks it feels like it's a different story, but kind of the same story. It maybe feels like the same song, but this week we're playing it with a different instrument. So you might at times feel like, yeah, got that. Heard that already, Ryan. Got it. Got it. It, I I got it. I know. Different story, but, but the lesson is the same. I got it. I got it weeks ago, months ago. I heard it in the first message. Yes, my flesh wants to resist that kind of repetition we see in God's word as well. I have to reconvince myself at times that the Lord has not called us to novelty or to new ideas every single week. Like every Sunday will be this awesome, earth shattering TED Talk. Just length shows you that they're not TED Talks, right? No, but God has called us not to novelty or new ideas every single week. He's called us to see a handful of truths over and over and over again. Different stories, same truths sometimes more deeply or more nuanced in a certain passage, sometimes more simply shown to us. But God does not fear repetition. So we should trust God in his word and trust him for those seasons when it feels like it's week 46 of the same kind of message. I preached through Revelation at uh, our last church in Colorado all the way through. About chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, it feels like judgment take 85. My wife commented to me once when I was preaching through it, I don't know, somewhere in the middle there in the teens. She said, either they're going to fire you or revival's going to break out. <laughs> Revival didn't break out, so we'll just say that much, okay? <laughs> so let's plod along with 1 Samuel. If 1 Samuel at times feels slow-moving, and it should, because David was anointed king to be back in chapter 16, and yet the rest of the book is David before his actual appointment. He hasn't yet ascended the throne. Instead, he's on the run and deposed and threatened. So that's a lot of chapters of what feels like the same thing, just different stories. But one of the broader lessons is that for Samuel is showing us that God fulfills his promises in his timing in his way that the progress of his plan often moves along slowly for David and for us and we plod through our suffering we plod through it at times fighting to believe fighting to keep sight on God's ways to to trust him and to praise him. It teaches us patience on many levels then. So today we come to chapters 25 and 26 in 1 Samuel, and we get two new stories in the broader story of God's man, God's king, and David eventually ascending the throne. Two new stories. We get some new angles to the overarching story, We get some new light shed on God's man and God's plan. But we also see some of the same old familiar themes just set within a couple new stories and maybe a couple of new characters. We're actually going to look at chapters 25 and 26 in reverse order this morning. Why? Well, because of the deja vu of chapter 26. In chapter 26, David restrains and spares Saul again. Chapter 26 is deja vu of chapter 24. We looked at chapter 24 last Sunday. In like 24, chapter 26 also is one of those close-up opportunities for David to take out King Saul, who's opposing him and trying to kill him. Since they're so similar... We won't take a significant amount of time this morning on chapter 26. We're going to focus on chapter 25. By the way, that might sound like I'm shooting myself in the foot, Uh, inconsistent with what I said just a bit ago about how we preach through books of the Bible patiently, and we plod along, and we trust God where there's repetition. Yes, I know I said that, but it's also part of the wisdom of the equation that we don't need to be rigid. We can... We can express God's word as a whole. We can decide to, to focus in on one chapter more than another. We can decide to take eight verses in First Peter if we're going through that. And then two chapters in First Samuel if you're going through that. And so we'll, we'll, do some, um, we'll do some paraphrasing today with chapter 26 and not study it quite as much. But we do need to see how chapter 24 and 26 compare. Again, it's deja vu. Remember how in chapter 24 last week David restrained his men? They were presented with that opportunity of King Saul going to the bathroom in their cave and all the men said, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us kill him and rejoice. David, the platter has been set for you. Take up and eat. It's the Lord's doing that he's here. But David said, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to the anointed king. And we're told that David persuaded his men with these words. Literally, he tore them down with these words. He needed to persuade them and persuade them powerfully not to go and kill Saul. So David spared Saul that day. As Saul left the cave, David confronted him just outside. And we saw last week, that chapter ended... Surprisingly, with Saul acknowledging David's future rule in Israel, God's blessing upon David, he acknowledged his own sin and folly in David's righteousness and graciousness and mercy. Well, now we come to chapter 26. Look over at chapter 26 and see this similarity. The first couple of verses tell us what's going on. It says, Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding himself on the hill of Hakilah, which is on the east of Jashimun? So Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph with 3,000 chosen men of Israel to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. It looked like at the end of 24 that, that Saul had given up. At the end of 24, it ends not with them swinging swords, but with them parting ways peacefully. It looks like Saul concedes the throne, almost, or at least acknowledges that there's nothing he can do to get in God's way, and hence David's way. It looks like he has relented. And yet, you skip over to chapter 26, and news comes from the Ziphites where where David is hiding. And Saul picks up 3,000 men and goes on the hunt. Once again. Here's the story after that in a nutshell. David and one of his men sneak up on a sleeping Saul in the middle of the night. All of the soldiers are sleeping there, miraculously so. And they find Saul with his own spear in the ground right next to his head. Conveniently placed for a stabbing to take place. Look at verse 8. Then said Abishai to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. But the Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But take now the spear that is at his head and the jar of water and let us go. So David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head and they went away. Now no man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. From here David and his man climb up to a high spot where they can be heard but not seen and from that high spot with Saul's spear in hand he begins to preach he yells down to Saul in company and he preaches just like he did back in chapter 24 outside the cave Saul why have you why do you why won't you don't you see that I could have And just like in chapter 24, and even more so here, Saul relents. So verse 21, Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no more do you harm, because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. He went on in verse 25, blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things and will succeed in them. So David went his way, and Saul returned to his place. Once again, it's a moment of clarity for Saul, but just a moment. Look at chapter 27, verse 1. Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There's nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. He tried that before and it didn't go so well. But he's willing to do it again because Saul is so intent on breathing down his neck with fire, so intent on killing him. And despite saying twice that he wouldn't, Saul, uh, David, doesn't, doesn't believe it. Nor should he. But regardless of where the story goes from here, the similarities between chapter 24 and 26 are unmistakable. In fact, there's a unity between 24, 25, and 26. The unity is this, the theme of temptation, of retribution. There's the temptation put upon David to pay retribution. There's one kind of temptation in 24 and 26, and there's another kind of temptation in chapter 25. So now let's talk about 25. The distinctiveness of chapter 25 is that David is restrained. Chapters 24, 25, and 26 share this common thread of a temptation to to give retribution. And yet, there's an important difference. In chapter 24 and 26, it is David who's doing the restraining. He's restraining his men. He's, a, he's restraining his one man at the head of Saul there, as Saul slept. He's restraining himself, no doubt, not taking vengeance upon himself. But in chapter 25, we're going to see today, David is the one that needs restraining. He's the one that needs restraining. Verse 1 of chapter 25 stands alone. It's not connected to either story before or after, but it's an important point. It's about the guy whose name is at the top of this book, at least in the English translations. It says, Now Samuel died, that is the prophet, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in his house at Ramah. An important detail to be sure, but not part of the story of the rest of the chapter. There are six movements to the story in chapter 25. The first, David's simple request. David makes a simple request. Look at verse 2. There was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich, and he had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal. And the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing the sheep. So David sent ten young men. And David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name. And thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you and peace be to your house and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now, your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm, and they missed nothing all the time that they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son David. When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and then they waited It's a simple request. It looks confusing to us. But you have to understand some of the cultural dynamics that are going on. Again, completely foreign to us in our culture today. One piece of the cultural picture here is that sheep shearing was a festive time during which the wealthy sheep owner would share and celebrate with those around him. That's why they say it's a festive time. Also, David and his men had been on Nabal's land or around Nabal's land in recent months, and and thus they had provided protection to Nabal's people and Nabal's sheep and shepherds. Add to that a, a culture of reciprocity in ancient Near East. Reciprocity, meaning it was expected that one kind act be returned for another kind act, it was simply being polite in those days. And add to that a certain culture of hospitality. That if someone requested help, or if someone needed help, it was the height of rudeness and selfishness to not fulfill their need, to not try as best as possible to to fulfill the request. So far from being some kind of mafia-like shakedown, and that's how I read it when I first read this passage, right? You get the picture, David's men went up to Nabal and his servants and said, it'd be a shame for something bad to happen to these sheep, you know? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? That's not what's going on, though. David and his men are simply making a very typical request of a man who was very rich. But the narrator has already put the writing on the wall about how this is going to go. Unlike his wife, Abigail... Who's wise and beautiful? Verse three tells us Nabal was harsh and badly behaved. In fact, his name, Nabal, in Hebrew, means "fool." I told my kids that this week, and they said, "How do the parents always know? <laughs> How'd they know? They're gonna, like, He's going to be a fool. Let's call him fool." It was probably a nickname. It probably happened, it probably got pinned to him later on. Oftentimes, parents did give a name that became fitting, but but his may have been a nickname added on later and, and one that he apparently seemed to embrace. Everyone called him that, including his wife and his servants. But it tells us he's a fool. David makes a simple request, but secondly, we see Nabal's insulting rejection. Verse 10, Nabal answered David's servants, "'Who is David?' Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my wheat that I've killed, my meat that I've killed, for my shears, and give it to men who come from I don't know where? So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. When Nabal says, Who is David in verse 10, it's not a real question, it's rhetorical. He knows who David is. He shows us his cards, really. And Nabal knows that he's Jesse's son. The servants of David didn't say that. He also knows of something of the split that has taken place between David and Saul. He says, many servants these days are breaking away from their masters, not only knowing that there's been some sort of division between Saul and David, but clearly not siding with David, assuming that David is no legitimate king to be. Just an insurrectionist. So when he says, who is David? What he means is, who the heck does David think he is? It's pure insult from top to bottom. He knows who David is. We know he knows exactly who David is because his wife knows who David is, as we'll see in just a minute, in great detail. No doubt he knew as well. Nevertheless, it's a multi-layered mockery of David, not just a no to their simple request. And yet common sense would tell you, this is crazy. This is dumb. This is foolish. David and his 600 men are not far away. This is David who has that famous song written about him. Saul has killed his thousands. David, his ten thousands. The Philistines knew that song. Surely everyone in Israel knew it as well. David, the giant slayer, is right there. Well, at least nearby. Perhaps with Goliath's sword in hand. Nabal is a fool. And he's also materialistic. You could say he's materialism personified. You see in verse 11... Shall I take my bread, my water, my meat that I've killed, and I give what's mine? Astonishingly, in the Hebrew, he refers to himself eight times in one verse. That has to be a record. It's six or seven in the English, but but in the Hebrew, eight times it's either I or my or my or, or I or mine. It's all about him, it's all about his stuff. And so the answer is clearly no. And the messengers return to David and tell him what Nabal said. And David's response is quick and it's vivid. Every man put on your sword. That's what he says. Verse 13. David said to his men, every man strap on his sword and every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. So now we're beginning to see the third part of the story. David's vow of revenge. David's vow of revenge. His later words will actually further explain his intentions here. Look down to verse 21. There David said, Surely in vain have I guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him and he's returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David and more also if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. Now if this were a movie we were watching we'd be cheering on David here. We'd love that money line, strap on your swords, men. We'd love seeing David put that old giant Goliath sword on his hip in March. You know, it, it, it would compete with Braveheart in those sorts of scenes of just bravery and courage and justice is coming and all that. But 1 Samuel isn't operating by the simple Hollywood ethic of cheering on the guy who's slightly less bad than the other guy. No. This is the king. This is God's anointed. This is the man of God's own choosing. This is a man who's supposed to be a man after God's own heart. And David here is a different man. Here in chapter 25, he's operating out of a different heart, with a different mind than what we saw in in previous chapters. Especially chapter 24 when he could have taken out King Saul but instead only cut the corner of his garment and even felt bad for doing that much afterwards. This is far different than the King, uh, King David of chapter 26 who had every opportunity to squash the skull of Saul with his spear inches by and yet he takes the spear gives a speech, and at the end, hands him his sword back. There's a problem with David in chapter 25. He goes beyond justice, even. I don't know Hebrew culture in these days well enough to know what would justice have looked like when Nabal says no, and he's a jerk. I don't know. But we know this king who's a man after God's own heart, is to show mercy, not revenge. He's to fight the enemies of Israel, not enemies he makes within Israel. He's Saul-like here for a moment. Saul-like. Do you remember in chapter 22, was it? Where Ahimelech, the high priest, aided David... Previously, and, and Saul found out and called him, and Ahimelech defends himself, and, and Saul has him killed, and his family, and all the priests, and the whole city. David's doing something similar here with his resolve to wipe out every single person in his household, or on his land, or within his domain. It's Saul-like. It's how the kings of the nations think and operate. So let's notice that there's some some lessons here about the nature of temptation. Some moments of temptation are so obvious and so obviously monumental that it's a little easier to not do the wrong thing, to do the right thing. And such was David in chapter 24 and 26 when he had the opportunity to exact vengeance on Saul, but left it to God to organize and orchestrate. But a worthless Nabal comes along, and he so randomly and nastily uh, shoes you and, and, and mocks you. And, and before David has a second thought, his sword is on his hip, and he's marching to his land to take out everybody. Be on guard at all times against the flesh. God said to Cain in Genesis 4, sin is crouching at the door and it desires to overtake you. Be on guard at all times. But back to the story, something else was taking place as David and company Geared up. Verse 14. But one of the young men, that is of Nabal, told Abigail, Nabal's wife. Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us, that is David's men. And we suffered no harm. We did not miss anything when we were in the fields as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us both by night and by day. All the while we were with them, keeping the sheep. Now therefore know this and consider what you should do, for harm is determined against our master and against all his house, and he is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. You get the feeling that this conversation or something like it has happened before between Abigail and some of her husband's servants. You get the feeling that they often have to go to the lady of the house and have her fix her dumb husband again because there's no talking to him. He hears nothing. He's a foolish man and he will not listen. So they bring it to Abigail, which now leads us, fourthly, to Abigail's bold rescue attempt. A quick thinker she wastes no time after hearing this news. Verse 18, Then Abigail made haste and took two hundred loaves, two skins of wine, and five sheep already prepared, and five seahs of parched grain, and a hundred clusters of raisins, and two hundred cakes of figs, and laid them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, Go on before me. Behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. No surprise, he will not listen to anyone. She has a plan of her own. She approaches David with what should have been given to him by her husband. And she approaches and she gives a speech. The speech she gives is one of the richest, most beautiful speeches of any women in all of scripture. It's filled with boldness and wisdom and godliness so look at it in verse 24. She came to David and his men. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, or for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my lord whom you sent. Now then, my lord, As the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt. Through me, me showing up here right now, the Lord has restrained you from going and wiping out our family and our people. He's restrained you from saving you with your own hand. Now then, let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. She knows her husband's in trouble. She also knows the Lord can take care of it. She knows that like all of David's enemies, eventually they will come to ruin by the Lord's doing. Read on. She says, verse 27, Now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house. The Lord will make my Lord David a sure house. Why is that significant? Why am I emphasizing that? Well, this is the first time that a sure house for David is talked about, but it's not the last time. In 2 Samuel 7, God heightens and enlarges the promises given to David. I will make for you a sure house, a forever house. Here Abigail is speaking not just of what God has promised. She's also speaking prophetically about what God will promise. She says, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you as long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living, in the care of the Lord your God, and the lives of your enemies He will sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord taking vengeance himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant what a speech huh what a woman huh i mean david's thinking if she were single and i was single I mean, what a woman you know beautiful and theological and thoughtful and passionate and rational what a great example too of godly confrontation yeah godly confrontation that's a little bit of what's going on here right She's intervening on, on her people's behalf. and She's trying to persuade David to a different path. So she's reasoning with him. She's, she's making a case. And in the process, it's a subtle rebuke. It's a subtle reproof. Last week, we saw how Jonathan strengthened David's hand in the Lord. We could say that's one side of the, the coin that we call in the New Testament fellowship. Strengthening each other's hand in the Lord. Here's another side of the coin. What Abigail showing us here. Gentle reproof, but bold and humble reproof. And yet it's also encouraging, isn't it? Here David is getting a repetition of the promises that God has already made to him. And some new ones that maybe he hasn't yet heard. It's all so beautiful and powerful. It's a bold rescue attempt. Fifth, we see David's godly response. It worked. Verse 32, David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to me. Notice the emphasis on the Lord doing this. Not Abigail, but the Lord did this. She said already, the Lord has intervened this day and stopped you from shedding blood guilt. David goes on with a similar theme here. He says in verse 33, Blessed be your discretion, blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from avenging myself with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from hurting you? Unless you had hurried and come to meet me, truly by mourning there had not been left in a ball so much as one male. How wonderful that both Abigail and David attribute ordinary events and human decisions as falling under God's providence, as God's doing, as God's leading, and God's working. They attribute it all to the Lord. And as such, David can't help but see things differently now. He receives her correction. The king to be... God's anointed, receives her correction, the wife of his enemy, a woman. A woman. Now, I I know that sounds misogynistic to keep saying a woman, but our days are not their days. It wasn't very popular for a woman to do this kind of thing to a man, uh, her husband, let alone someone else, let alone the king-to-be, but she does courageously and boldly and humbly and truthfully. She persuades David and David responds. He takes her correction. What a contrast with Saul. Saul was confronted a number of times in the chapters before. The prophet Samuel rebuked Saul a few different times and each time Saul defended himself against the prophet and then the story ended with Saul walking away walking away from God's rebuke. Jonathan, his son, appealed to Saul in chapter 19, and there Saul listened. He said, I will not kill David. At least he did for a moment, and then four verses later it says that Saul threw a spear at David again to take his life. A chapter later, when Jonathan, his son, asks his father, Why should David be put to death? What has he done? Saul hurls his spear at his son. And again, as we said in chapter 22, when the high priest Ahimelech tried to reason with Saul about why he should be so against David, David responded by by killing Ahimelech with his family, with the priests, with the whole city. Saul is actually a lot like Nabal. Remember, Nabal's servants said, one cannot speak to him. Saul shows us that on every turn. David had a Saul-like response to Nabal's foolishness and rudeness. He was even prepared to recreate Nob all over again, that city of priests that Saul and his crony destroyed. But when confronted by Abigail's courageous, godly appeal, he conceded, he relented, and happily and thankfully so. It reminds us of a more famous scene in the life of David, many chapters later in the stories of Samuel, where he sinned with Bathsheba in many uh, multiplying ways. And the prophet Nathan confronted the king eventually, and he repented greatly. David is a man who sins greatly. He's also a man who repents greatly. Some of our best repentance psalms are written by David. And really, apart from King Jesus, this is about as good as you can hope for in a human king, right? We shouldn't be surprised that David was tempted to act like a king like the nations. We shouldn't be surprised that David was was tempted to stand up for his honor and send a strong message that you can't do that to God's anointed. We shouldn't be surprised that he was tempted. We should be encouraged instead that he relented, that he repented, that he heard. He was no proverbial fool who refused to take correction. Are you? You might be quick to sin. Are you quick to repent? Are you quick to repent? David was. Lastly, the story gives us a quick resolution. A quick resolution is really an epilogue at the end here, verses 36 and following. It says, Abigail came to Nabal back home, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king. He had nothing to give David and his men. He's got plenty for himself. Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until the morning light. In the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things about what she did with David. And his heart died within him, and he became a stone. And about ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal And he died. Perhaps he had a stroke. Perhaps he had a heart attack. We don't know. There was something that happened when he heard the news of what his wife did with David. And then ten days later, there was a death that the Lord seemed to do. We don't know whether Nabal was surprised that his wife would give some of his stuff to David, whether she would side with David. We don't know what it was that struck that initial blow to his heart and his mind so that he became frozen. But we know what happened at the end, ten days later. It was the Lord who did it. His wife foretold that it would happen. Not in specific terms, but she said, May David's enemies go just like Nabal. She didn't know when it would happen, but she knew what side of the Lord Nabal was on and that eventually God would have his way with him in judgment. When David heard this, verse 39, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal. On his own head. Now we must remember that David is no ordinary follower of Yahweh. He's God's man, he's the anointed, he's the coming king. And so he can celebrate the the destruction of God's enemies and his enemies, which are really the same, in a way perhaps that we can't. Nabal wasn't just scorning David. Nabal was scorning God and his ways and his man and his plan. And that's why David can celebrate the injustice done to him being paid by the Lord, avenged by the Lord. Remember Psalm 2? Written about David and about David and even more so about Jesus. O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth, the Nabals of the world. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. Nabal didn't do that. And hence, Psalm 2 came to a realization in his own life. The remaining verses of 1 Samuel 25 tell us about David's ever-changing marital status. Look at the second half of verse 39 really at the end the last sentence and following It says then David sent and spoke to Abigail to take her as his wife You knew it was coming didn't you When the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel they said to her David has sent us to you to make you uh, to take you to him as his wife And she rose and bowed with her face to the ground and said Behold, your handmaid is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. And Abigail hurried and rose and mounted a donkey, and her five young women attended her. She followed the messengers of David and became his wife. David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel, and both of them became his wives. Saul had given Michal, his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who was of Galim. Now, you might have noticed the math seems to be one too many wives, at least. There's no comment here on the morality of multiple wives. But Deuteronomy 17.17 says that when Israel has their kings, they are not to have multiplying wives like the kings of the nations do. They are not to multiply wives. David's clearly going a different direction here. It seems in the Old Testament at times the Lord permitted polygamy or put up with polygamy. And by that I simply mean not that it wasn't sin, but that he didn't confront every instance of polygamy in many or most. He simply did not. But we know that it's not God's design based on Genesis 2 and Adam and Eve and how they're made to go together, one flesh uh, from two people. And we also know that the Bible all over shows us that polygamy is fraught with trouble. Whenever polygamy is described in the Old Testament, uh, some of its ugly hues always come out. No surprise, right? In our non-polygamist culture, we look at that and go, yeah, no surprise. Uh, One wife is hard enough because I'm dumb. Not because of her, but I'm dumb. And two wives, I can't do it. I couldn't do it. But just as important as it is for us to wince a little bit at David's extra wives, it's perhaps more important that we note that Saul is ever Saul. You see the last verse? Saul took his daughter from David in marriage and gave her to another. Saul is ever acting like a king like the nations. Samuel the prophet warned A king like that will take and take and take and take. Here's Saul giving and taking. Eventually, God will do with Saul just what Abigail foretold. Of all God's enemies, he will sling them out. It's what Hannah foretold at the beginning of the book. When she prayed to the Lord, she prophesied. And she said, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will also give strength to his king and exalt, exalt the horn of his anointed. We're seeing that play out in chapter 25, aren't we? We're seeing it play out in chapter 25. The Lord's enemies are being destroyed. God is exalting his anointed king, protecting his anointed king, leading his anointed king. He's, he's teaching his anointed king. God's doing a million things all at once. He's showing David take correction. He's showing David the need for not just justice and retribution, but mercy in trusting the Lord with vengeance, trusting the Lord ultimately, to defeat God's enemies, because it's not by might, not by sword. The battle is his. And yet, these are all shoes that are far too big for David to fill. Aren't they? They're far too big for David to fill. That's one of the things we should take away from this chapter. Let me just quickly mention four. This sounds like I'm about to begin another four-point outline and, uh, and you're you're getting nervous but don't this is very quick here are four overarching um, observations from first samuel 25 the good guys like samuel the prophet they can't last forever the good ones keep dying secondly the good guys aren't perfect david's vow of vengeance against nabal reminds us he's not perfect Thirdly, the Lord intervenes in unforeseen ways. He uses surprising people. Uh, Like a girl like Abigail, who hasn't been mentioned anywhere in the story, and then she pops up on the scene wearing a cape. Right? She might as well have flown in. She's great. But fourthly, the Lord is always the real hero of the story. Not David who repents, not Abigail who confronts. The Lord is always the real hero of the story. And both David and Abigail attest to this. It was the Lord's doing. The Lord has been working and intervening and protecting and leading. So we got to see something more than David. And we keep doing that as we study 1 Samuel, don't we? So how do we see Jesus? Who is the center of our Bibles? How do we see him foreshadowed in 1 Samuel 25? Well, surprisingly, we see some in Abigail. We see some foreshadows in Abigail. She took her husband's blame upon herself, she interceded on behalf of her family and her servants. It is not too much to say, she saved them. And she turned away David's wrath. Abigail, from another angle, though, reminds us of that thief who was crucified next to Jesus, the believing one, who said, When you come into your kingdom, remember me. Well, Abigail said basically the same exact thing a thousand years before to David. When you come to your throne, Remember me. She appeals to the king based on who he is, based on God's promises to him. She confesses him, to use important New Testament language. Right, We confess him as Lord. And she confesses David as king. She believes that he's the one, believes what God has said, believes what God said he will do. And she believes also that the anointed one will have mercy on her. She asks, yes, but she asks in faith and asks boldly. She knows who he is. We also see a foreshadow of Jesus in David, as we've seen so many times before. This time, however, we see it from another angle. We see first that David's imperfection in this chapter it exposes the need for something more than David. This can't be the one, could it? We know Saul's not the one. David's the one, right? But is he the one? Is this the seed of the woman of Genesis 3:15? Is this the ruler from Judah of Genesis 49? Is this the Lord's anointed that Hannah prayed about? Yes and no. But Jesus is the one. David's imperfection in this chapter reminds us that we need more than David. We need Jesus. But also David, we remember, resisted temptation. In the end he did. And thus he didn't take personal vengeance on his enemies. Just like our Lord. Our Lord had mercy on his enemies. David was just a foretaste of the godly suffering and confident trust that we see in Jesus upon the cross. I said last week that Jesus and his cross is both a payment for sin and a path for us to follow. And I quoted from 1 Peter 2. And I can think of nothing better to do this week than to do the same thing. Listen to 1 Peter 2, a little bit more verses than last week. This is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it, Peter says, if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure? It is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So we say with Peter in chapter 1, verse 13, set your hope fully on the grace that's to be revealed at the appearing, at the appearing of our Lord Jesus when he comes again. We can set our hope fully on him. Let's pray to that end now. Oh, Father, we thank you for one who not only showed us godly suffering, but suffered in our place, and righteously so. Righteously so, so that we might have his righteousness. We praise you for one who bore our sin, bore our our payment. We're thankful for one who did so righteously that we might inherit his righteousness as a free gift received simply by faith. Father, we pray that faith would spread here today. We pray salvation would spread here today. And we pray everyone who believes it, Lord, would walk in light of it. That we would set our hope fully on the grace that's still to be brought to us when you come again, Lord Jesus. We pray we would look to your word and preach to ourselves to live in light of it. To walk consistently with you As you give grace to do so, to trust that you will not lead us into temptation, but you will deliver us from evil as you did David. You will lead us in righteousness for your namesake. You will give us each other like Abigails and Jonathans to encourage and remind, to preach and reprove. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for all these promises. We thank you for your word and for the grand plan that you've unfolded for us in your word and still unfold today. We pray in Jesus' name.